Good morning. Good morning. If you'll stand with us, we'll open together in a congregational song. Let's sing together of the hope that we all have in Christ alone.
We're going to do a series of songs now before the sermon, and I'll let Dr. Pettit introduce the group and the songs as we're getting ready to do. It is a wonderful blessing, joy, privilege to be here at First Baptist of Wixom, and we are the BJU Grass, Bluegrass Group from Bob Jones University, and I'm Steve Pettit, President at Bob Jones University, and these are students here, and uh, let me let me just, uh, let me introduce it very quickly. I'm going to give you the, I'm going to start with the, the, the lone freshman, and this is Audrey Aaron here from Quitman, Arkansas. And I'll go ahead and introduce her big brother. This is her brother, Carson, who is a senior uh, at Bob Jones University and is also our student body president. And so they come from this, obviously, from the same family in Arkansas. And then I'll introduce our sophomores. This is Anna Dion on the banjo and Hallie Ritter on the guitar. And here on the fiddle is Savannah Lacey. So Savannah is from Idaho, North Carolina, South Carolina. And then right here in the middle is Miss Brindley Takelly from Wixom, excuse me, Brighton, Michigan. Okay. 
And uh, she went to the school here at First Baptist of Wixom since the fourth grade. And so glad that she's singing with us. And then this is Mr. Josh Hall from Lodi, Illinois. Senior, just graduated last semester. And so uh, we're so thankful to be able to be here this morning. We'd like to do a song, beautiful song, entitled Immortal, Invisible God. like to uh, do a wonderful song that speaks about 
are crying out to God in prayer. One of the great testimonies that you're a Christian is that you pray and you seek your God. I'm going to ask uh, Audrey to sing, continue singing. This one is a, a song about God's leading in our life. One of the things that we know is that we're his children. He is going to lead us on. So the prayer is, God, lead me up.
Uh, Brindley to sing this song. This is, a, this is a really, you know, when we, we work on songs, we'll go, that's a really cool song. And what makes it cool is the words of it, the way, the feel of it, and the blessing that we have in singing it. So we're going to sing Brindley's cool song. <laughs> and it's entitled, I Shall Not Want.
to do one more message, one more song before the message this morning, and uh, this is a beautiful testimony to our Lord, and the song is entitled, My Redeemer is Faithful and True.
heart rejoices when I read the promise. There is a place that I'm preparing for you. I know someday I'll see my Lord face to face, because my Redeemer is faithful and true. My Redeemer is faithful and true. Everything He has said He will do. And every morning His mercies are Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 4. Anna, would you hand me those CDs there? And those, that, yeah, thank you. Uh, first of all, let me say how thankful we are to Pastor Silly. I've known your pastor many, many years. And for the privilege to be here today, primarily to be able to sing and preach God's Word, but also to share with you the, the brief story of Bob Jones University. Uh, we were founded 96 years ago in 1927 by an evangelist who was concerned about the negative influence of the liberal education in the United States of America in the 1920s. Think about that one. And he wanted to have a school that was very intentional for Christian young people to be able to come and get really an outstanding education that develops the character of the person with a complete and thorough biblical world view. And that is exactly what we've been doing for 96 years. You don't, thank you, I appreciate that, brother. Um, you don't get young people like this, you know, like that. They grow up in Christian homes. They have their ups and downs. They get to college. Uh, college is a time of growing. When you grow up in your family, you live with your parents and you visit your friends. When you go to college, you live with your friends and you visit your parents. And you go to a place where it's just, it's just life-changing. That's what college ought to be about. It ought to be life-changing. And for the believer, of course, the life has changed through the combination of mentorship God's Word, responsibilities, hard work. And then at the end, there's a young person that comes out that has committed their life to follow Jesus Christ, His purpose plan. They've committed themselves to the local church. 
And then they have a skill set to go out in the world and make a difference. So I see ourselves as not just educating Peters and Pauls and Johns, but also educating Nehemiahs and Josephs and Daniels, who at every point of life, they are lights shining in 10,000 different places. And so that's really what we're all about. If you're a young person who is in the 7th through 12th grade, if, we, if you would be so kind, if you're willing, if you want to, stop by and fill out a, just, just a simple information card because all of our recruiting for students is through churches like yours because there's a like-mindedness there. And uh, so fill this out. The team will be there afterwards. And uh, in, to sweeten the deal, we're going to give away some free T-shirts. So I hope you'll do that. If you enjoyed the music this morning, we do have a couple of CDs on the table. If you still actually use CDs. And uh, this is the uh, best of 20 years, the Steve Pettit Evangelistic Team, back when I traveled as an evangelist. And then this is a gospel bluegrass CD entitled Wherever You Are that the BGU Grass put together. If you enjoyed the music this morning, then I think you will definitely enjoy that. We're reading this morning from 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Let's hear God's word this morning. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. May we pray together. Lord, we are thankful this morning for the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of love, the Spirit of comfort, the Spirit that illuminates and guides and regenerates. Lord, forgive us that in so many ways we grieve the Spirit, We hinder the Spirit, and sometimes we lie to the Spirit. Lord, please cleanse us today. May we receive the Word today so that we could say that we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And God, bless these good people here at First Baptist, our friends, our visitors. And may, Lord, you be glorified. May you bring people to saving faith. May you bring those who have been saved to a greater faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in the state of South Carolina. As a boy, I attended church, and I grew up in what I would call a nominal Christian home. By that means, a, name, a, a Christian in name, sort of like growing up as an American. When I was 17 years old, for the first time in my life, I came to hear and understand God's good news and the gospel of how God saves sinners. But I didn't become a believer until my freshman year of college. I went to a school in Charleston, South Carolina called the Citadel. It's a military school. I played on the varsity soccer team. There was only two of us that were freshmen who made the varsity that year, myself and a fellow named Maxie Birch from Beaufort, South Carolina. Maxie shared the gospel with me as we would walk back and forth to the stadium because he had become a Christian his senior year of high school. And, of course, we became best friends. And through his witness and through the work of God in my life, 
I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior on Easter Sunday, 1975. For probably the next, I'm going to guess, five, maybe six months, I knew the decision that I had made when I received Jesus. I remember listening to the preacher preach. And, and of course, I had heard the gospel many times, but I knew the, the definiteness of that decision that I made for the Lord on that day, Easter Sunday, 1975. But still, in my heart, I knew what I had decided, but I, I deep in my heart wondered, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? In other words, I had doubts, not about who Jesus was, but doubts of whether or not I was a Christian. By the way, how many of you have ever doubted whether or not you actually are a Christian, though you actually believe you're a Christian, but you have doubts about it? Raise your hand. You ever done that? Okay. How many of you have ever asked the Lord to save you more than one time? Lord, if I didn't mean it then, I definitely mean it now. Okay. And it wasn't until my sophomore year in college, I actually went to a Bible study on the campus of the Citadel, and a man got up and he taught on the evidences of salvation. Here's how you know you're a Christian. Here is the effects of the gospel in your life. And I cannot tell you how that one little Bible study, what it did for me, when I sat there and I listened to the Word of God, and I realized that what God says happens to a person when they get saved had actually happened to me. And I knew that night, I knew I was saved. I do believe there's a difference between faith, believing, and assurance. They're not exactly one and the same. There's no doubt in my mind that there are people that are believers that do not live with assurance. And so this morning, I want to ask the question and try to answer, how do you know that you truly are a Christian? And how do you know it according to the Scriptures? The Bible tells us here... That a Christian is one who has God residing, dwelling, or living within your inner being, your heart. That's what John tells us here. For three times he tells us that God lives in a true believer. Notice what he says. Hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us. He says later on, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells, God resides, God lives in him, and he in God. And then the last phrase is found where he says in verse 16, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Paul the Apostle says it this way, Christ in you, in you, the hope of glory. Or Galatians, he says, Christ liveth in me. So to make it real simple, a Christian is one who has God residing, living, dwelling within his own heart. So I ask you this morning, is God today in your heart? So the question then would be, how can we be absolutely certain, assured, that God lives in us? So here's what John does in this passage of Scripture. He elaborates on this truth by presenting three incontrovertible tests. 
that confirms the indwelling presence of God in the life of every believer. Every believer has this in their life. Someone has written that the best summary in the New Testament of how a person can truly know that he is saved are in these verses that I read to you this morning. So what are those three tests that have to be taken to know if God lives in you? Here they are. Test number one. Do you possess, do you possess in your heart the Holy Spirit of God? Look at what he says in verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us. Here's how. Because he has given us of his spirit. The internal witness that someone is a child of God is that the Holy Spirit lives within you. Paul said it this way. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit is given to the believer at the moment of salvation and continues to operate in the human heart throughout the entirety of your life. Paul said it this way in Romans 5, verse 5, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. John says he has given us of his spirit. And the, and the verb given is in the perfect tense. What that means is it happened at a point in time and that effect is in your life now. Forty-eight years ago today. Excuse me. Forty-eight years ago next Sunday. Forty-eight years. Now, for some of you, that's not that long ago. But for most of us, that's longer than you've been alive. The Holy Spirit came to take up His residency in my house. Have you ever had anybody come to live in your house and stay there? On a permanent basis? Generally, it's called your children. Okay, They live there. Now, actually, they don't realize that it's really not permanent. Because at some point, your parents are going to want you to move on. But at least for a certain period of your life, you dwell in that house. The Bible here tells us very clearly that the Spirit of God comes to live inside the believer and He stays with him throughout the entirety of his existence on this earth. So how do you know then that you possess the Spirit? How do you know that? What are the evidences of His indwelling presence? Well, let me say that the Spirit's presence is not determined, first of all, by you living a moral lifestyle. I'm not negating the, the importance of morality, but that's not the basis of you knowing that He's dwelling there. The Pharisees were very moral, but God didn't live there. Let me also say that conforming to a religious code of behavior, and this is a case that I've experienced for many, many years growing up or living with Christian young people who grow up in a Christian home and there's a Christian code of behavior. We get that. It's not wrong, but that's not the manifestation that God lives within you. Let me say that being engaged in religious activity or worship, I've heard many, many times, I grew up in the church every time the doors were open, I was there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. 
And yet, being involved in religious worship and being involved in church is not the guarantee that God lives within you. All of these can be done by someone who has never been born again. When the Spirit indwells the soul of a believer, that believer possesses something that no religious person has. And that is they possess the power of a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And let me say that this indwelling presence, this new life, is a transformation that is so radical that your inner man becomes different. So that you literally begin, you begin to desire things that you never desired before. You begin to desire the things that are holy. And the evidence of this work is unmistakable. Because a true believer possesses an appetite, a desire for things that are spiritual. Peter said his newborn babes Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I grew up going to church. And when I went, I went as a duty. And I got in and I got out. But if you ask me, do you have any appetite for spiritual things? Looking back on it, I couldn't really verbalize it at the time. I had an awareness of my guilt. Okay, I knew I was... I knew I was guilty because of things that I did. But that is very different from having an appetite for God. A desire for the spiritual. And what John is telling us here is that a true believer has that appetite. There's an appetite for the Word of God. The interchange has affected your attitude so that you have an eternal focus. You see things different. Your vision is not the secular, it is the spiritual. It is not what's here, it's what is eternal. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by a renovation of your mind. So the power of a new life gives you an interest in and a passion for spiritual things. Let's put it this way, real simple. Church used to be boring, now church is a blessing. People say, is it a pressure for you to go and preach on Sunday morning? No. It is a blessing to be in the house of God. Pressure for me is not Sunday morning. It's Monday morning. Being in the house of God. I remember I would go to church and I would feel uncomfortable with the people because I wasn't like them. But when I got the same Lord in my heart, I found that I love them. And I want to be with them. So a believer has an appetite for the spiritual. But let me also say, because the Spirit dwells in us, a believer possesses an awareness of sin. There's a new sense. Maybe you could even say a sixth sense about sin. And that is far greater after your conversion than before your conversion. For example, Paul was deeply aware of his own sinfulness. He said, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. That is in his sinful nature. He was aware of that. I I remember after I became a Christian, 
And I began to grow as a believer. And in my growth, I became aware of. I started seeing what I'd never seen before. I remember going home on vacation with my family. And uh, being in college, I, I didn't watch a lot of TV. So I, I was ready to veg and chill and watch. And so I turned on the TV. This was back in the day, of course, you have to understand, because I saw the original Gilligan's Island. And I remember going home thinking, oh, Gilligan's Island. I'm going to watch Gilligan's Island. And so I started watching it. And you know what? I started seeing some things I'd never seen before. You remember Ginger? I thought, okay. And I started hearing things. An emphasis in what we would call the world, I became aware of it. I was like oblivious to it until I became a believer. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will have this appetite for the Word and you will have this unusual awareness of sin. I played soccer at the Citadel. D1, you know, intercollegiate sports. Competitive. Are you watching March Madness? Intense. And when you're playing all out at 20, 21, 22 years old, and you're playing for championships, and it's all out, all into it, you're going to hear all kinds of things out on the field. And so when I would play on the field, I would hear so much cursing. And as a believer playing on the field, hearing the cursing, it bothered me. And after a while, I didn't know what to do. Do I just be quiet and say nothing? And so I decided that I was going to do the opposite of what they did. If they took God's name in vain, I would praise God. But the point is, when the Holy Spirit is in your heart, there is the definitive evidence of it. So let me ask you, do you possess the Holy Spirit? Number two... If you're a true believer, you have made a clear confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. The Apostle John had a privilege that very few people in human history have ever experienced. He actually got to be with Jesus. He says in 1 John chapter 1, in the beginning of this book, that he had a personal relationship, a friendship with Jesus while he was on the earth. So that John said, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, and I have never forgotten him. Now we look at that and we think, what an incredible privilege, and no doubt it was. And the rest of his life, John testified to what he had seen and what he had heard. And what did he say? What was his message? He said, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The question is, what is it that I testify? What is it that I embrace? What is it that I confess and that I hold to? What is this message? Well, by the time... John wrote this letter. We call this John's first letter. The question had had arisen in the church whether or not people needed saviors at all. 
You know, I remember back in the day when I would ask somebody, are you saved? And somebody would say, I didn't know I was lost. In other words, back in that day, as in our day, there's a fundamental denial that man is lost in his sins. He doesn't realize his spiritual condition because he doesn't understand the world because the world is a world created by a supernatural God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And in that creation, there was a first couple named Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And in their disobedience to God, it transformed their inner nature. And that inner nature has been passed on to their children, all humanity, ever since. So that every child that is born is born with a self-centered nature. Now, there are a lot of people that don't believe that people are born bad. And my response is always, please work in a church nursery. Because children live with a self-centered reality. So when you, in the church nursery, you know, the, the, the words that you hear repeatedly by children are, that's mine. And the teaching of the Bible is that it teaches us that not only are we sinful or self-oriented, but we are God-resistant. We actually don't want God to rule over us. And we all have this awareness in our conscience, in our reality, that there is a God for creation demands a creator. And if there is a God who therefore has a moral character about who He is, because God is a person just like you and I are persons, though God is not a human, and just like you and I have a character, the kind of person that we are, God has, God, all character and morality begins with God. And I realize that. And I realize that as I stand before God, I do not stand before God good. If I really understand the way that I've lived, I understand that I've broken God's laws repeatedly throughout all of my life and I did it willingly and I actually wanted to do it because there's something that is inside of me that is wanting to live to please and to satisfy myself whether it's the it's the desires of my body or the desires of what I see or this sense this sense of of pride and and living for myself all of those things that's what makes up a human being. It doesn't mean that human beings can't do good. But what John was trying to say and what he taught is that mankind absolutely is in desperate need of a Savior because our sins separate us from God in His moral and perfect character. And so the message of John was very simple. He said the entire world is under the dominion of Satan. 1 John 5.19, and we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the wicked one. John taught the, that the divine Son of God pre-existed. He lived before He came into the world. Jesus was God in the flesh. And He was sent into the world to fulfill God's plan. And what was God's plan? To send Him to be a Savior. A Savior from what? Our sins. Of who we are and what we are. And how did he do that? John teaches us it was through Christ's 
atonement. And that atonement is what brings us to God. And it was through His sacrifice and the giving up of His life through the shedding of His blood. And the Bible teaches us that Christ is the propitiation for our sins or simply means He's the one that satisfies God's demands to pay for our sins. And the teaching of the Bible is clear that eternal life is provided through Jesus Christ in His sacrifice and His resurrection but it is only provided to those who confess their faith in Jesus. So obviously the question is, have you confessed your faith in Christ and what does that mean? And a confession is more than a verbal statement of belief. If I say Jesus is the Son of God and I confess that, I believe that, that is not necessarily means that you're a Christian. For a confession is a public acknowledgement of two things. One's own sinfulness. If I have cancer and I go to the doctor, what am I confessing? I have a problem. And the doctor hopefully could be the answer. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Repentance in the Bible is the acknowledgement of your condition. Repentance is not giving up this sin and giving up that sin and giving up this sin. It is the acknowledgement of, the, of a condition. I was diagnosed two years ago with cancer. I went to the doctor. The doctor said, you got cancer. And I had to acknowledge it in order to do something about it. You cannot, be, you cannot be delivered from your sin unless you confess and acknowledge that. It is a confession of your own inner personal guilt and sin. But it also means to confess that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who died on a cross to save me from my sins. And that confession is actually a heart's trust. My wife and I were married this summer 43 years ago. I remember it pretty well. Not all the aspects of it. But I remember standing at a wedding altar. And and I said, I went through a confession, a statement... And the preacher said, will you marry this woman? And I said, I do. And the pastor said to my wife, would you marry this man? She said, I do. And the pastor says, you're done. And you're married. That's as probably good an illustration as I could give about what it means to confess. Because at that moment, I, I, I entrusted my life to this woman. And this woman entrusted her life to me. And this morning we briefly talked and I told her I loved her. When you become a believer, you make a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as the one to take away your sins and you're trusting him with that for not only life but for all eternity. I ask you, have you made that confession of faith? For how do I know that I'm a true believer? I've made a confession of Jesus Christ. And then third and finally... What is the third incontrovertible test 
that I know, may know that I'm a believer, and that is this. Do you know that God's love is actually in you? We read in verse 16 of 1 John 4, For we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, in God in him. Now, John is concluding what he had started with back in verse 7. When he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. John is not saying that we know that God loves us, but rather that that love which God has is actually in us. His Spirit is in us, and therefore His love has been placed into us. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones presents ten tests to know that God's love is in you. How do you know God's love is in you? And I want to say this. This is not something you can produce in yourself. And this is not something that you can work up. Because love in the Bible is a fruit. It is a result of. And the Scripture here tells us that this is a part of God's gracious gift. He actually puts His love inside of you. What are those evidences? What are those tests? Number one, have you lost the sense that God is against you? The Bible says when we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. Christ dying for us means that we are going to be saved from God's wrath through Jesus. Let me ask you this question this morning. Have you lost the sense that God is against you? Basically, before you become a believer, you recognize your guilt and there's a fear of God. But when you become a believer, now you know there's a love of God for you. Second question, have you lost the feel, feeling of fearing God while at the same time you have a sense of respecting or reverencing God? My mother um, passed away two and a half years ago. I've often had people say to me, not so much now, but especially when I was younger as a preacher, they'd say, you're kind of intimidating. I would laugh and say, oh, you've not met my mother yet. I really loved my mother. And I know she loved me. Because every time I called her, she had the sweetest, aristocratic, southern voice I've ever heard. And I'd call her up. I'd say, Mama. That means I'm a southerner. I'd say, Mama. She'd say, Darling. And she loved me. I never feared my mother in the sense of feeling like she would reject me, but I always respected her. Paul writes in Galatians that when God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, it brought a cry out of our heart that said, Father, Abba, Father. And then Paul said, you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. As a slave, you live in fear of your master. As a son, you live in respect of your father. That's the difference. Let me ask you, have you lost that feeling of fearing God and at the same time have a sense of respect and reverence of God? Number three, do you feel that God is for you and that he loves you? Do you feel like God is for you? Does not Paul say, if God is for us, who can be against us? What do I have to fear? 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ. We are affirmed. We are accepted in the beloved. We are in Him. We are in Christ. Our identity is not in what we do or or what we accomplish. Our identity is found in who Jesus is. And we were placed in Him. When you were saved, you were baptized into Christ. And now God loves you and He is for you. Number four, do you sense your sins are forgiven? Paul writes in him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Do you have a sense that all of your sins are forgiven? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been a Christian next Sunday 48 years. I am very confident, very confident God forgave my sins before I got saved. All those sins I had up until I was 19 years old, I know God forgave them. The difficulty is that I've, had to, I've lived the Christian life much longer than I was an unbeliever. And if I'm like you, I have things in my life that I've done even as a Christian for which I'm ashamed. And I mean, there, everybody in this room, you have things you have done in your life for which you are ashamed as a Christian and you don't, know, and you don't want anybody else to know about it. But that doesn't mean that you can't live with the sense that God has forgiven you of all your sins. It doesn't mean that if I've done wrong, I shouldn't confess it because the way to overcome it, John says, is to confess your sins. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. Are you living right now with a sense that your sins are forgiven? If you're a believer and you don't have that sense, then confess them and he promises to forgive you. Number five, is there gratitude and thanksgiving in your heart towards God? The gracious giver has given the greatest gift. He has given his son. And therefore, there is a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving. Number six, is there an increasing hatred for sin? Paul said, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do, not, I, 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 do I don't want to do. He said, is sin that dwelleth in me? And then he said, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, the closer you get to the Lord, the greater you see your sin, not the lesser. I get around some Christians, I'm thinking, uh, dude, you're sinning. You realize that what just came out of your mouth is sin. But that also ought to be in my own heart, in my own life. That I should have a growing hatred for sin. Number seven, is there a desire to please God And live a righteous life because of what he's done for you. The greatest motivation of serving God is not what God gives me. It's what God has given me. And I want to please him. Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 8. That because God has put his spirit in me. I actually have a desire to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. When God says don't do this. I don't reject that. I actually accept that. I don't want to do that. And so the Ten Commandments are not a burden to me. They are a blessing because they show me the way in which I can walk in obedience to God. Number eight, do you have a desire to know the Lord better and draw close to Him? As the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, God. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. I came from a family of four children. I'm the oldest of four. My youngest brother is named Bill, named after my dad. He's nine years younger than I am. If, if he came walking in and you heard his talk, you would think, You're, you guys are brothers. It's really, really obvious. But we're really different. I mean, I was a Baptist preacher, and he was a construction worker for 30 years. And by the way, working in the construction world for 30 years, that's a pretty salty world. Well, I led my brother to the Lord when he was a, a boy. I, I led him, big brother, I led him to Christ. And so he has had lots of ups and downs in his life spiritually. But throughout all of it, my brother has shown that he does believe. He is a believer, even though there were a lot of years of a lack of obedience. And my brother called me this week. He called me. We talked. He called me. And so we started talking. And, you know, good old selfish Steve I told him what was going on in my life this week, and he knew nothing. And then when I was done, he said, you want to hear what's going on in my life? I said, yeah. And these are his exact exact words. He said, Steve, I have been swept back into the bosom of God. Amen. Amen. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't even know what to do with that. You know, don't, I don't normally have people say, I have been swept this week into the bosom of God. And I said, well, what's happened? He said, I've been reading the Bible every day. And there is a transformation that's going on. He says, I'm going to move to South Carolina. Because he has a daughter there and grandchildren. He wants to be close to them. He said, he said, do you know about the scarlet thread of redemption? It's like, yeah, I know about the scarlet thread of redemption. I said, you talking about a book? He said, I don't know. He said, it's in the back of my Bible. The scarlet thread of redemption. Where you go from the very beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible and throughout the whole Bible. There's this scarlet thread that represents the blood that washes away our sins. And I was in my office and we were talking to each other at this, this pitch. And he would say, I'd say, amen. And what he did is he manifested to me the evidence that he's a believer. There's a desire to draw close to God. Number nine, do you have a conscious regret that, you love the, that your love for God is so poor, along with a conscious desire to love him more? Your love is poor, but you still want to love him more. Paul says, to be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, and depth, and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. I feel like I'm trying to study the universe when I study the love of God, and I look at my love, and it is so poor. It's, it's really bad. And yet I want to love him more. If you have that, that's, a, that's an evidence that you're a Christian. And then finally, do you delight in hearing about the Lord? The psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I was glad. Because I want to hear 
about the Lord. You know, being a Christian, if you think about it, is kind of weird. Because how many people on a Sunday morning get up to go to a building to sit there and to listen and to hear? Except for the fact that in your soul, in your heart, there is a new life and there is an appetite. And you know you need to hear God speaking to you. You know what that is? That's an evidence that you're a child of God. Three tests. There's a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You've made a confession. And that the love of God is there and there are evidences and signs of that love being manifest in your life. And so let me ask you this question this morning. Do you know, do you know that you are a Christian? Does God live in you? If not, then what do you need to do? You need to confess. I believe, Lord. I believe. It's not the greatness of your faith that saves you. It's the greatness of your Savior that saves you. And if you would call upon Him today, He will save you. May we pray together. In a moment, your pastor is going to come and conclude the service. But could I urge you, could I encourage you, Right now, sitting in your seat, if you have never made a confession of faith in Jesus, and yet sitting there, you're saying, I actually believe, I believe this, then now confess it. Simply say to God, God, I believe that you are, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died for me. I embrace and accept Him this morning as my Savior. And then start to confess it. If there is real faith in the heart, there will be a confession in the mouth. It will come out. If you've never told anybody that you're a believer, then start telling somebody. Go, go tell your pastor. Go tell a church member, a deacon. And then follow the Lord and show that you're a believer by telling others and confessing your faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for what you've done in hearts. And we thank you for the work of God. You live inside of us, O Lord. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Pettit. I know that many that regularly attend here at First Baptist Church have had questions about the gospel and questions about salvation. I really appreciate that message. And for those of you that are new believers, may that bring some assurance to your faith. What a clear presentation of how to know for sure that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us, team. And Dr. Pettit, really appreciate you. Um, Dr. Pettit, particularly when we were college kids, when Mari and I were college kids, um, Dr. Pettit and his wife were major influencers as they were part of our discipleship process. And now 30-some years later, he's still at it, discipling college kids for the glory of God. And we greatly appreciate that example. Several of the students from Wixom Christian School and from First Baptist Church of Wixom are at Bob Jones University, and so I hope that today's uh, music and message will remind you to pray for our college kids wherever they're at and to um, ask God to help our students become those leaders in the Christian world that Dr. Pettit was describing a little bit ago. In just a moment, I want to have the team come sing one more song before we go, but before we do that, just a little bit of housekeeping. Let me mention 
Just a couple of brief announcements. Next Sunday, as you know, is Easter Sunday morning, and we have a special schedule on Easter Sunday morning. We have an early sunrise service at 7 a.m., and that tentatively will be in the link this year. So 7 a.m., and then at 9 o'clock, a breakfast. So if you're inviting friends, coworkers, neighbors, family to come, that 9 o'clock breakfast is a great way to get them here on time for the 10 o'clock morning worship hour, 10 o'clock. So a special start time to the morning worship next Sunday morning, and it is going to be full of really great music and a special message from the Word of God that I think you will find a great blessing and an encouragement. We've been in a series of messages in the book of Psalms, and next Sunday morning we will be in Psalm 49. Psalm 49 is a great resurrection passage, and it asks this question, who can give eternal life? What a great question, right? And the conclusion of the psalmist is, no man can do that. This is only a thing that God can do. It's a great passage as we think about the resurrection. This morning, as you came in, you might have missed the community group study guides. They're on the table in the back of the auditorium. There is community group tonight at 6 p.m., and it is a preview of Psalm 49 for next Sunday morning. So a little bit different order of our studies today. Psalm 49 introduction tonight, and then the message on Psalm 49 next Sunday morning. I hope that you'll pick one of those up. Also want to mention that there's this uh, children's workers meeting on April the 13th that is required for everyone in children's ministry at 7 p.m. A brief choir rehearsal in the teen chapel downstairs for everyone who's going to be in the choir for Easter for next Sunday morning. And then a reminder that in two weeks we have another baptism service. Excited about some of our adults that are going to be baptized in a couple of weeks. If you have questions about that, if you're interested in being baptized, please see me at, right after we dismiss today and I can help you with that. As soon as the team is done singing, several of you have RSVP'd for our meal. That meal will begin immediately. And so if you're part of that, we ask that you go directly to the cafe off of the gymnasium and they will be ready to serve us then. I want to pray and um, just ask the Lord to help us as we dismiss. And then team, as I pray, would you come up and prepare to sing one last song as we go? Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for the assurance that we can know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And today, as we think about Jesus entering Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, the week before his death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, there, there were people crying out, Hosanna, this is Messiah, we worship him as God, and they were rebuked. And Jesus said, Lord, if, if the people don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. Lord, would you this week help us to praise you and not let anyone stifle our worship of Jesus Christ, our great Messiah, the one who has eternal life in his blood and who gives that to us freely on the cross and the one who rose from the grave giving us assurance of that eternal life. Thank you for the day together today. We ask that you would bless us as we dismiss and enjoy this last song together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
this old life is such a mystery. So many things that I can't see. Just when I think I've overcome, another battle's just begun. Lord, I know there's purpose to your plan. It's just hard to see from where I am. So I'm calling on your holy name. Won't you be my shelter from the rain? Lord, I'm going to need your help today to stand the raging tide. You will have this child to come my way. The reason for I don't know why. All I know is if I'm on my own, I can't even stand. I'm going to need a hand. Lord, I need your hand. As I read your word to understand, I'm reminded of another man. His brother sold him as a slave. Joseph never lost his faith. God, I praise you and I'll praise you still. Day by day I learn your will. And I promise you no matter what, Lord, I'll trust in you. I won't give up. Lord, I'm going to need your help today. Time. You will have this child to come my way. The reason for I don't know why. All I know is if I'm on my own, I can't even stand. I'm gonna need a hand. Life is such a mystery. So many things that I can't see. But I promise you, no matter what, Lord, I'll trust in you. I won't give up. Thank you for watching this video of one of our recent services. It's a pleasure for us to have you join us from a distance and join our church in a time of worship around the Word of God. The most important message that we can tell you is that God loves you. And He loves you so much that He gave Jesus Christ as payment for your sins. And the Bible says that all that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We want you to know that message that true life is found in Jesus Christ and eternal life, the opportunity to live with God forever in heaven in spite of our sinfulness. True life is only found in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? 
Would you be willing to pray something like this? Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I know there's nothing I can do about my sinfulness. I don't want to pay for my own sin. And I want to put my faith in Jesus. I want his death on the cross to pay for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my own way and make Jesus Lord of my life. Would you be willing to pray something like that and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If so, we want to help you as you start your spiritual journey with Jesus Christ. God loves you. Our church loves you. We're glad that you could watch this message today. God bless.